0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, thank you for the honor of allowing me to be here this morning. My name is Chuck Garriott, and uh, it is an honor to be able to come and to be participant in your worship and to bring the Word of God. Uh, I do want to just point out a couple things. One is that my wife, Debbie, and my youngest son, Peter, are over here towards my right. I know they don't like me to shed any attention on them when I do these kinds of things, but uh, it is important that you know that uh, I am greatly loved and cared for and uh, two of the favorite people in my life are over there, especially my my wife, Debbie. She has to endure a lot uh, as she uh, takes care of someone like myself. Uh, I also want to say a little bit about the ministry uh, that was brought up earlier this morning in the worship. Uh, ministry to State is the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America's representation to people in government, We're not there for policy or the political side of things or uh, the passing of laws, etc. But we are there for the person, and we are there as a means of of sharing the gospel and helping people grow and develop in their relationship with Christ. So this thing is called Ministry to State. And one of the means that we use to communicate the gospel would be through uh, written materials or publishing books like Love and Power, which we I've brought some here with uh, with us, and it's really complimentary. You're welcome to take a copy or two, or you know, if you're looking for that special Christmas gift, just take one, you know, with you, and and you can wrap it up and give it to your whoever you would like to uh, have that uh, particular book. Anyway, uh, today, as I as as was already mentioned, the sermon is somewhat based on the the fundamental passage that that book was, and it's a way uh, of communicating to those in places like Washington, D.C., as in Capitol Hill, or in the White House uh, administration, just some basic truths of the gospel. One of the members of Congress was kind to spend a lot of time with me going over the manuscript and was an interesting discussion as he was dealing with this passage again that we'll be looking at this morning from Mark chapter 10. Anyway, uh, it's great to be with you. I would like to draw your attention to the passage here in Mark chapter 10. And if you have a New Testament with you and you would like to turn to Mark 10, verse 17 and following, I'll be reading uh, this portion of God's Word. I am going to be using the NIV, but you may have the ESV or another translation, which is fine. But here is the Word of God, chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. "'Good teacher,' he asked. "'What must I do to inherit eternal life?' "'Why do you call me good?' Jesus answered. "'No one is good except God alone. "'You know the commandments. "'You shall not murder. "'You shall not commit adultery. "'You shall not steal.' You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And at this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, with God. Will you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to worship and time to be in your word. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would work in all of our lives, that you would remind us of these truths and give us a fresh look at this passage of Scripture. And we pray that not only would we understand, but we ask, God, that you would help us to apply what we understand and more to our lives, to the way in which we think and the way in which we live out each day. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. A couple questions as you think about this passage. One is, as you go through the Gospels and you read the different encounters that Jesus has with different people, in most cases, you learn their names, but not so here we don't know his name. We refer to him as the rich young ruler, but we don't know his name. Why is that? Is this a parable? No. It's a real person in a real period of time, in a real place. Secondly, is it possible, is it possible that this man has the same basic DNA as the older brother? Have you ever thought about that? Does he demonstrate some of those same basic mindsets, characteristics in his thinking, in his life, as maybe the older brother? There are many questions that occur to me when I read this passage of Scripture. And as you can tell, I've probably been around for a while, like I didn't just graduate from high school. And in those years, I mean, we're talking about close to a half a century since I've come to Christ, I've wrestled with this passage. And the more I spend time in it, the more I see different dimensions and issues in regards to this man and his interaction with Christ that I've never seen before. And so I would love to have the opportunity to hear from you, but we won't be able to do that this morning in regards to the thoughts and the questions that you might have pertaining to this particular portion of Mark chapter 10. We're given, of course, the interaction between the rich young ruler and Jesus. Those details that were given, they took, what, a couple of minutes, right? From the time that the man presents himself to Christ, he's down on his knees, he's in the dirt, he's in the dust, he's asking Jesus his basic question, Jesus asks him some other questions for clarification in terms of his own life, his own soul, and then he gives him a direction, So you have that part, and then you've got the interaction with Jesus and the disciples. Sort of the debriefing of what just took place. And then it's over, right? So relatively speaking, it's a short period of time. And yet within that minute or two of interaction, we're taught a lot of important things. But one of the basic things that we're taught is in regards to this issue of repentance, And when we talk about repentance, we're talking about having a change of mind so that as you are going in one direction with your life, with your thinking, with your habits, repentance means that you are now going to change direction. And this man is being asked, is being instructed to experience true biblical, true gospel repentance. And yet as we go through the passage, what we're going to learn or what we're going to accent this morning, is the fact that for him it was impossible. Jesus speaks about that, right? He says to his disciples, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. And the truth is, this morning, not knowing who you are, but but having a hunch, having a sense of who you are, that the fact that you are here and you're involved in worship, and let's say That you've only come here once. Maybe this is the first time. Maybe normally you're not involved in worship. But let's just say that you're here only once. Even the fact that you are here is a demonstration that God is probably doing something incredible in your life. And those of you who have been here, who have made a profession of faith, the fact that you are able to do that is an incredible miracle. And a lot of times we just take it for granted. In this case, this man, what Jesus is asking him to do is, humanly speaking, impossible, but not with God. So this morning, I would like us to look at a number of things that make it impossible for this man to have true gospel repentance. And in order to do so, let's go back to the very beginning of the passage and note what this man says to Jesus. I'm sure that he thought about it many times, perhaps, as he was on his way to Christ. But it's this, this first point, understanding impossible repentance is really easy for you to remember. Remember, When you leave here, if someone asks you, what was the first point? Oh, you'll know immediately because it's only one word. And that one word is I. I. The man comes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Now, it's important for us this morning to unpack that word I. In many cases, we just kind of go on. We don't think much about it. But all of a sudden, if you think about the passage, the spotlight, the camera, everything is focused upon this man and his sense of what it means for him to be all that he is. We know that he's a Jew. We know that, according to the three different Gospels that include this account, that he is wealthy, he is young, and he's a ruler. We call him at times the rich, young ruler. And the fact that he's a ruler isn't so much because he's a governor of some province or or a portion of of, uh, Israel, or what have you, but he's probably in a leadership position in a synagogue. When we talk about him being young, he's not a kid, no. Uh, You know, I think about, especially as I get older, I think about my life in three different segments, right? The first segment is, or the season, is that one uh, part where you're uh, going from birth to the, the final days of your education, that's season one. Uh, season two is from that point on, so it's your career, it's, it's all the, the, the great things in life. Uh, as I think about them, finding the, the perfect person that would marry you and having children and a family and, and developing, in my case, a, a ministry, maybe in your case a career or whatever the case may be. And then, and this is what I'm facing now, eventually you might finalize all that and now you're in that final season of life. This man is in the middle probably of that second season and it's really sweet. And it's it's just like everything you could ever want. He's got it. And so as he's thinking about his life, for some reason, he's concerned about what's going to come what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's haunting him. And so he's seeking out Jesus. But again, as Jesus meets him, Jesus unpacks, so to speak, what it means for him to be an I. Now there's another dynamic that we need to talk about a little bit, and that is like this guy's wealth. I don't know what you're your, uh, your wealth is. I don't know how much debt you have and what your assets are, and etc. But the fact that the scriptures, whether it be Old or New Testament, would accent the fact that you are wealthy, like Abraham was considered to, to be a very wealthy person. Solomon, etc., was considered to be incredibly wealthy. That tells us something. What does it mean to be wealthy today? What does it mean to own a lot. I mean, in some ways, we look at it and we think it has to be incredibly attractive and wonderful, right? But it's got its downsides. It's you know, if he's if he's wealthy and he's got a lot of people that work for him, you know, he's got issues with with uh, his uh, his his people that are serving him that are on the payroll, and sometimes they're not always happy about their working conditions. I don't know, but life becomes somewhat complicated. And then, of course, there's that outward presentation. I suspect that for this man, I'll call him Mr. Ruler, for lack of a better term, this morning, that Mr. Ruler certainly, certainly must have dressed accordingly. And I'm just going to tell you right now, uh, I do buy clothes occasionally. This jacket that I have on, which is not terribly old, uh, I bought at Dillard's. And I paid, I paid, and it was a, it was on sale, two hundred dollars. It's a wool jacket, hundred percent wool, and I felt pretty good about it. And so I have a sense of the value of clothes. I just want you, I'm, I, I just want you to know that. And so occasionally, my, Debbie may say to me, you know, well, it looks like this shirt needs to be, you know, put in the rag drawer and whatever. And so you know, you buy things and you have a sense of of shirts. And so I happen to be. Uh, a couple years ago, in downtown Washington, where I spent a lot of time, and I had an hour or so before a meeting, and I was close to the downtown section, and this hotel, I won't, I won't refer to the name of the hotel, but if I did, you would know it immediately, and it was a very well-done hotel, very fancy, glitzy kind of hotel, and I just happened to walk in there thinking, I wonder who hangs out in this hotel, and, and uh, I noticed to my right, there was this small boutique type of men's store, clothing. And it's not the kind of thing that I would normally look, look in, but I decided just to kind of peek in and kind of look around, and your platform here would be twice as big as this boutique uh, men's store. And so as I went in and I looked around, I noticed that the, uh, the, the man, the, the manager of the store was there, it, just to tell you, By the end of the conversation, uh, I had learned that he had committed himself to Christ a number of years prior. But before I got to that point, I asked him a little bit about the clothing, uh, the men's clothing in this store. Now, if I I say the name of the store, you may or may not be familiar. I was not familiar with the name. It didn't mean anything to me. But the name of of the clothing is Brioni. Now, never knowing anything about Brioni, I I asked some questions. So, well, tell me a little bit about your clothes. And I, I had a maybe a four hundred dollars suit on. And I mentioned that to him. I said, "Look, I'm I'm a four hundred dollars suit kind of guy." And, and uh, so I don't know a lot about clothing. He said, "Oh, no, no." He said, let, "He said I'm glad to let you know. I, you know, he un- he understood that I wasn't there to buy anything. And when I tell you the rest of the story, you'll understand what I mean by that." So he begins to describe these. Uh, sports coats and the wool and, and the, 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 uh, the sheep and where they live like on some special part of the Caucasus, you know, in that part of the world. And he's going on and on. It's Italian-made suits. And uh, so he's telling me all these things. And so finally I got up the nerve and I asked him, I said, well, would you mind telling me how, how much would that sports coat cost? All are right, you're all sitting down, right? He said, uh, well, this, this coat that I'm showing you, this is $8,000. All right. I don't want to touch it, right? I don't even, I want to step back from an $8,000 coat. I'm thinking, that's incredible. And then, of course, you know, the, the next question is, well, if you don't mind me asking, what about a suit? Oh, well, a suit, you know, a typical Brioni suit is, Eleven to $12,000. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what would it be like to wear a Brioni sports coat, right? Or a suit that costs $12,000? That's just an incredible amount of money. So then the third question was, all right, so this is what's hanging on the rack here. What would be like the upper end of a Brioni suit? Now, please, stay seated. When, what he told me next, I just, I just couldn't get over it. But he said, well, and he, he said it without pausing. There was no, there was no like, apology or anything like that. Oh, well, upper and suit is $60,000. $60,000. And I'm thinking, what is it like? And I asked him, I said, who out there wears $60,000? thousand dollar suits. Oh, and then again, without without like, you know, pausing or anything, he said, oh yeah, he said, there's a lot of men out there in the world. You know, it's the Europeans, etc. Again, this is a guy representing an Italian uh, suit company, and he's going on and on and on. And I'm thinking, that is such a different world. I just cannot, I cannot get over I'm wearing a four hundred dollar suit as I'm talking to the guy. I thought that was a lot of money. But now we're talking about $60,000 suits. Now, I know that I'm going on way too long, but I'm just simply accenting if that's the kind of wealth that you're used to, right? So that when, and think think about being in the, in the dirt, in the dust, kneeling, talking to Jesus in a $60,000 Brioni, and you're asking him, good teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. You get the picture, right? That because it's not just, Lord, save me or help me, it's show me what I must do. Because, by the way, I'm pretty significant. I wear $60,000 Brioni suits. I I, drive any, I not only drive any car that I want, but I'm driven by cars. And, it's my, and, and after this meeting, I've got to jet you know, over to Egypt and pick up you know, whatever and Right? I mean, the whole world is yours. And so as this man is speaking to Jesus, he's just not connected with anything except what must I do? Show me. Because I can do it. And my question to you this morning is simply this. As you think about your relationship with God, are you thinking more about what you can do and again, there's a, there is clearly a part in our relationship with Christ that needs to be exercised. But is it possible that you are so centered upon your own abilities and you don't even wear a, a $60,000 Brioni dress or a suit or whatever the case is, but, but still you're, you're really something in a way, right? You, you have such a view of yourself that God becomes pretty small. Now, if you will, if you still have Mark 10 open, look at Mark 10, now verse 47. And look at the contrast. Look at the difference here. This is a picture of true repentance. It's a man who is blind. And he can't see, but he can hear. And he's heard about Jesus and his ministry, and who he is. Just like that rich young man, Mr. Ruler. But notice what he says. When he hears that Jesus is coming, blind Bartimaeus doesn't say, Jesus, show me what I must do. He says this, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Do you see the contrast, the difference? Which are you? Show me what I must do. Our Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And let me say this. I don't believe that what we're being taught in Mark is just kind of a one-time thing. I think it's a daily thing. And I struggle, I struggle just as much as maybe you do, maybe even more in terms of of the issue of me, Chuck Garriott, I, what I can do, what what I, etc. Everything being around me to build me up, so to speak. Well, no. It needs to be the blind Bartimaeus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Do you regularly make such a proclamation? Secondly, impossible repentance is not only about I, but it's about Understanding your blindness, which you can't see. Three things that strike me in this passage in regards to the rich young ruler. First of all, he is in front of the living God. He thinks he's in front of a good teacher. He thinks he's in front of somebody that is well-educated, that has a lot to, to say in regards to the spiritual side of life. And and yes, he can help you in terms of this issue of getting Getting you into heaven. I mean, the thing is, if you're rich, you're always looking for the people who can help you get into whatever it is. I live in a world in D.C. where people are always looking for the right, the right way into the conversation, into the policy uh, development, making of laws, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Who is it that I need to talk to to get me into the right people? This man understood that the rich young ruler. But he has really missed the mark here. Because he is now standing, not in front of just a good teacher, and Jesus immediately picks up on that, right? He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You are standing, Jesus didn't say it this way, you are standing in the presence of the creator of this universe who takes darkness and creates light who created the world out of nothing who knows what's going on in your own life etc. The list goes on and on that's who you're standing in front of and you're treating him like he's some kind of a consultant that you're going to pay a fee to so he's blind in regards to seeing God and you know one of the things that strike me about the passage in terms of my own life is how often I am blind in terms of seeing the presence of God in my life and in my world. And I do believe that as Christians, we need to pray, Lord, show me, open my eyes that I can see what it is that you are doing in this world, in the lives of of my family members, in my community, in my own heart. Show me what's there. Secondly, in terms of the blindness, The man doesn't see his offense. So Jesus not only says to him, you call me good, no one's good but God alone, and you don't see that. But then what does Jesus do? He transitions, he he takes the focus from the fact that the man does not see who he's talking to, to his own life and heart. And he says, well, okay, we're not going to beat up on that issue anymore. Let's talk about who you are. You know the commandments, right? And Jesus goes through. There's the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, etc., right? Do, you should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not give false testimony. It's interesting to note that as Jesus is accenting the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, that he is accenting the second half of the moral law, And in a way, the question in regards to, about only God being good, he's somewhat accenting the first half of the moral law. But now he's accenting the second half. And what is so fascinating to me is that the man responds immediately. He doesn't pause. He doesn't say, well, let me think about that. No, immediately in verse 20, he says, Teacher, he declared, all these, not some, all these I've kept since I was a boy. He's totally blind in terms of his own sin. He's totally blind in terms of his idolatry. So Jesus wants to help him. Jesus wants to help him understand his own idolatry, his own blindness. And So not only does he not see the fact that he's in the presence of the living God, he doesn't see his own sin And the consequences of his sin, well, maybe that's the other side, right? Not only does he not see his sin, he doesn't see the consequences. He doesn't get it. He doesn't see that he is on a path to hell. He is on a path of experiencing the wrath of God for all eternity. And he doesn't doesn't see that. And the, I guess the other thing, when I think about this section of John, of, of, excuse me, of Mark, Mark chapter ten, is that here you have all these things going on, and we have all those things going on today. We don't see God, and the world doesn't see God. We don't see the fact that we have offended God. We're not just broken; we have offended the living God. And there are consequences to that. And if that's true for the world in which we live in today, then, then we ought to understand that the world in which we live today needs a lot of prayer. And we need to be salt and light as Christians, and we need to be interacting with our neighbors and those with whom we work, and our family members, etc., understanding that, yeah, there's a lot of I going on, and there's a lot of blindness. And the world in which we live, they don't see God because they can't because of their sin. And they don't see the consequences of their sin and their offense. And instead of us being angry and irritated by the world in which we live and the things that are going on and the things that are not going on, we ought to be mourning and, and again, praying for the world and for those in it that are in need of the gospel. And I'll be honest with you, in a place like Washington, Debbie and I, and and Peter, Peter was a junior in high school. uh, When we moved to Washington, we came in 2003. We've been there ever since, and God's been very, very gracious. But over and over and over again, I'm reminded of the need of this passage to be applied in a place like Washington. And not just in Washington, but in other capitals, in the country, and in the world that people would be able to see and understand their blindness. Thirdly, as we kind of wrap this up, impossible repentance does deal with this issue of love. In verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And by the way, that's not like the lesser forms of love. That's the agape form of love in the original. One thing you lack, he said, Go sell everything you have. Go sell your Briones and your cars and everything you have and give to the poor. Have you thought about the poor lately? Are you concerned about those who don't have even a small portion of what you have? And you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And at this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. I wonder sometimes about what is actually going on here. Let me say this. It's possible that when you leave here this morning that you might leave a bit feeling like the rich young ruler. You may leave somewhat sad. You may leave somewhat like I still don't get it, or I'm, I'm kind of like that rich young ruler. I'm all about me, and I'm not willing to follow Christ in every area of life. Maybe that will be you, and I'm sad if that's true, but it's possible. Or maybe there's other areas in your life where there's a need for repentance, and again, you're all about me in terms of how to resolve that as opposed to leaning on Christ. Because the gospel is all about Jesus. It's all about leaning on him. It's all about acknowledging him in every area of our lives. And that's not always easy. I think about that. I I think about, well, you know, maybe Jesus could have been a bit more pastoral, right? Like, just love the guy for who he is. If he wants to give to your ministry, receive it, right? Kind of develop the relationship. Let's take this a little bit slower let's not like just be you know dumping so much on him that he'll never be able to do right sell everything right if i told you that i you know after the service we're hanging around i say, hey have you sold everything today you know have you you know and you're like whoa you're a little bit radical here it's a good thing you're only here once every 10 years and (laughs) i'm glad when charlie gets back that's what we do you know charlie brings people into the pulpit so that when he gets back well wow we're so glad to have you back pastor Because the last guy, he was asking a little bit too much. But this man is being loved by Jesus, we're told. Right? So regardless of what happens, this is the definition of God loving the man. And notice what it means. It means that Jesus is not going to accept his blindness. He knows he's blind. He knows he can't see. But Jesus isn't going to just accept that. He's going to challenge him. He's going to help him to see. And it's painful. And I believe that's what God will do in our lives. That he knows how blind we are. And he knows. And he knows we need to see. And his love, in essence, enables us by the work of his Holy Spirit to take a dead heart, someone who is totally dead, who can't see, and enable them to see. And that's why it's so incredibly important for you to understand that if you are sitting here and you come and you worship, regardless of how imperfect it may be, you come and you worship, and you do it Sunday after Sunday, that tells me that there is literally a miracle going on in your life because one of the things that's happening is that you're able to see in a way that you haven't been able to see, and it's only because of the gospel and the grace of God in your life. And secondly, in terms of this love, Jesus does not want this man to leave with a false sense of righteousness. That he really, I believe, thinks he's pretty righteous. He's pretty good, right? I've, all these things, oh, I've, I've obeyed all those all my life, right? You know that if I were to tell you, get up in the pulpit here and begin by saying, first of all, I want you to know that there's a thing called the Ten Commandments and every one of those I've always obeyed my entire life. I suspect it wouldn't take you very long to get up and leave. And you think, I'm, well, that's it, you know. This guy really is loony. No, Jesus was not going to accept that. And so Jesus says to him, you've got to recognize the idolatry in your life. You say you've, comm- you've, you've obeyed all these commandments. The big, the big first half of the, of the law, the, of the Decalogue, you have and continue to violate You are making your life, your Brioni suits and everything with it an idol and you're following that. Jesus isn't going to let him leave. And then thirdly, this love of Jesus that he's giving is all about me. But not me and not you. It's all about what Jesus says. Sell all your possessions and give your proceeds to the poor, and then come and follow me. And that's the wonderful thing about the gospel. It really is all about the I, but it's the Jesus I. It's the Jesus me. And so I don't know exactly where you may or may not be in terms of the gospel. I have a sense for a lot of you. And I praise God for that. And I praise God for you, regardless of where you are in this, in this conversation, but I do know this that repentance is impossible with us, but all things are possible with God. And that repentance is going to be all about addressing this I and showing Chuck Garriott that, okay, maybe he only wears the $200 wool blazer or suit or whatever the case may be but he just he is just as much consumed by the eye and the idolatry etc as the rich young ruler with the $60,000 Brioni and he is blind and I need the grace of God to show me regularly my blindness and I struggle with it and I pray that you do as well but more so I want to see the love of Christ who came, who gave up the riches of heaven and came on this earth to die, to be humiliated, to suffer for me, that I would see my sin and I would repent and I would follow Christ, but only by his grace. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we know that this rich young man, ruler, its not just somebody out there, but each of us here. We have our own wealth and our own issues. And so we ask, God, that you would help us see it, see our blindness, see the eye, all that it means, and we would turn to you in repentance. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for suffering for us. In Christ's name, amen. as we come to the conclusion of our worship, it is our privilege to come to the table. More appropriately, to come to the Lord's table. To to know that the table that has been prepared has been prepared for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11 says this. For that which I have received, I also pass on to you. He's speaking to the church in Corinth. Our Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after the supper, our Lord, with in the presence of the disciples, those who have been following him, took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. For whenever you eat the bread or you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This table is the Lord's table for the Lord's people. And so if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ alone and you surrendered your life to him, you're a member of this church. Maybe not a member of this church, maybe another church. You do not need to be a member of this particular congregation or even the Presbyterian church in America. But but if you have surrendered to Christ in repentance and faith, this table is for you and it's been prepared for you by our Lord. And his death and his resurrection and his life, his suffering is all being represented here. And as we come together as the family of God, as the people of God, we celebrate what he has done and we enjoy being in his presence even now. Will you please pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray, Father, that you would come even now and remind us of how much you love us And what it means for us to have the privilege of wanting to follow you and to follow you only by your grace and by your mercy and your love. As we partake of these elements, we ask, Father, that you would bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I should have mentioned that before we got to this point, if you do not have the elements, they are in the back and you're welcome to get them if you do not have them already. So feel free to get up and do that. Uh, because of COVID, we're concerned about passing things around and passing uh, the virus, obviously. But if you would like to have one, it is available to you. As I mentioned, Jesus said on the night in which I was on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and if you will, you can take the top layer off, and the wafer is there, and uh, join me in taking the wafer now. And in the same manner, after the supper, our Lord took the cup, if you will, remove the top part of the container. Jesus said, this uh, is the blood of the new covenant. Do this as often as you, I do in remembrance of me. Will you please pray with me? Father in heaven, this table is yours and you've given it to us, your people. The gift of God for the people of God. Thank you, Father, for your death, your resurrection. Thank you that we can have the assurance of knowing that when we die, we will be in heaven. Thank you that we can have the assurance of knowing that today and tomorrow and following, that we can trust you in any area of our lives. And you will answer our prayers, and you will hear our prayers, and you will lead, and you will guide us, and we will experience your love. You are our shepherd. Thank you for giving us these elements, we ask, Father, that we, we will honor you now. In Jesus' name, amen.